on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, maestro Kerry Lynn Wilson goes inside the huddle with Oliver and guest panelist conductor Anthony Bereze. Find out what score the Canadian conductor carries around as leisure reading while she prepares to be part of the reopening of performances at the Opera de Bastille in Paris. And two-minute drill, fresh off his triumph as our interview guest on the OBS, Lawrence Brownlee wins the 16th Annual Opera News Awards. We have a really great show for you this week. It is so jam-packed. I'm going to brag a little bit. It's December in Chicago, and my cousin and I are still playing tennis outdoors. Why? <laughs> because that's how I get my exercise, and I burn off all the whole milk that I drink. Oliver! Okay, that's, that's like super hyper-specific uh, to your personal sports news, but... Just to get to go zoom out ever so slightly, uh, here in the Chicagoland area, Northwestern University, I heard, uh, clinched their uh, division there in footballs, uh, the Wildcats. But, <laughs> hey, you know, first of all, can we take a moment and applaud Oliver for knowing something about sports? Like, let's, wow. let's have a moment. Besides, let's ironically, moment. tennis. <laughs> yes, also true. Yeah, so basically, uh, Northwestern Wildcats, uh, based on the games that they have gotten to play, not the one that they didn't get to play because of COVID against Minnesota last week, they have clinched at least a share of the Big Ten West title. Uh, they are going to have a berth in the Big Ten championship game mm, in uh, not later like, December. Not that kind it's like, of birth. Yeah, it's like the 19th. Matt Cummings, tell us who's no longer undefeated in the NFL. Unfortunately, it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. That game started at 5 (laughs) p.m. Is it Monday afternoon football now? Like, what is... (laughs) Monday brunch football. Ashley, Chris Collinsworth, usually a pretty stand-up guy. Boy, did he blow it. Speaking of Pittsburgh and sad things that happened there recently. uh, Yeah, I mean, and Chris, he has... He has since apologized for this. I do not do this to drag him. I do this to say, hey, this is something that's still happening and it's muscle memory for folks to be shocked and a little impressed and mostly shocked that women football fans exist. Uh, he, yeah, basically in a, in an interview, he was like, everybody's a fan, in particular the ladies I met. I'm just blown away by how strong the fans are. It, women can like football. I think Thanks. that's from his tight five from 1992. <laughs> Women love football, as evidenced by Ashley Hardgrave, a huge Razorbacks fan. Razorbacks and the Tide going head to head. I may be just as boneheaded because more often than not, I'm assuming that all Connor tenors are gay. So, uh, same type of stereotype, you know. <laughs> That's, that seems fair. Yeah, I mean, you do have two SEC football fans on your panel here. Um, one one fan is having a great season, and one fan is having a predictably less great season. Uh, my boys lost a heartbreaker uh, in Missouri on Saturday, and the final game of the season uh, for the three and six Razorbacks is going to be against Weston's eight and O Crimson Tide. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ashley. Like, I, so I hope they're able to like peel the bodies off the field afterwards. Is the is the <laughs> thing that I have to say. Well, 
I, I just, I want to congratulate you now just to like, get it <laughs> over with. Just to get it over with. But more on that next week. All right. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Oliver Camacho went inside the huddle along with a uh, longtime contributor to the show. Friend of the show. Yeah. Conductor Anthony Bereze. Oliver, tell us what mistakes were made. (laughs) So later on in this episode, we'll hear that um, France is getting ready to open up uh, their theaters, their cinemas, their museums. And part of that opening is a Carmen at the Opera de Bastille, which will be conducted by Maestro Carolyn Wilson. Uh, so I thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk to her about that. And as I was doing my research on Maestro Wilson, I realized that I'm way out of my depth in talking to somebody as brilliant as her. She's just one of those incredible musicians who has so many skills and no fear. And in in doing my research about her, I learned that she plays piano and violin and flute. And while she was getting her master's degree in flute at Juilliard, she decided to take try a little conducting. You know, see what that's like. <laughs> Why not? And yeah, and then she got a second master's from Juilliard, and that you know, one thing led to another. And her first conducting engagement in opera is at the Arena di Verona, which Oof. is, I mean, I we actually talk about that's our first topic once begins the interview. But as I was. Doing my research, as I said, I feel completely unqualified to talk to her about uh, some of the things that she's capable of and understands and is passionate about. So I thought I'd bring on Maestro Anthony Berese to be my sidekick on this. And we do, in fact, begin this conversation talking about her experience uh, conducting at the Arena di Verona. But I will say, if you'd like to learn more about Maestro Wilson, besides going to her website, which is obvious, uh, there's another show on the Dallas Opera Network called Ask Maestro with Emmanuel Villon. And she gives an interview where there's a lot of history of how she got to become a conductor. And uh, just recently, she won the, or she was nominated for the Conductor of the Year and the Opus Classique 2020 Award. So she's got a lot going on, this incredible artist. Uh, here's our interview with Maestro Wilson. I love some of the stories that you've already told on other platforms. And one of the stories that really tickles me is how you began conducting uh, at Verona, first in the Philharmonie, but then shortly after in the Arena di Verona, you started out doing Lucia uh, and then you were asked to do Tosca in the Arena, which to me is bonkers um and i you know i also asked anthony on because he understands verona a little bit better anthony could you just kind of touch on what you think verona is i mean i've been to Ver- i've never conducted in verona but i've been an audience member of verona many times and as maestro will probably attest it, it is unlike any other operatic experience it's it's almost like cirque du soleil it's just it's it's huge. The, the staging is enormous. I mean, sometimes you know you have you have multiple horses on stage and and carts running around and all kinds of stuff. And the, there's not really a pit, but you, everything's mic'd and you're kind of quite far away from everybody else. And it does seem like a specific challenge for ensemble making. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just I, and Lucia is such a singer-driven opera. And and Tosca is such an orchestrally driven opera in so many ways, and, and it just seems like you were you were thrown from one end of the of the of the spectrum to the other, you know, quite quickly. And I, I just would love to hear about what that experience was like. It was a big step to say yes, I'll conduct Lucia di Lammermoor in six months. 
I listen to every recording, every single interpretation. I studied it basically on my own. I got a few, um, I asked a few conductors about how I approach rehearsing bel uh, canto, like in the first orchestra reading, do I have to sing recitatives? I mean, I really was complete virgin in opera. So I went to Marana. I, of course, singers who have sung the role for 20 years, very fantastic singers. It was, it was nice to have that at least, you know, and of course the orchestra knows that she has. So it went very well. They engaged me for Tosca in the Arena di Verona. However, I, I, we were cheating. The fact where I was cheating that I said that it went, you know, from Philharmonia to, to the Arena. I actually had a Tosca in between, in, at the Opera de Nice with uh, Del Monaco, the son, uh, Giancarlo, Grace Giancarlo. He was, he was directing uh, Tosca. My first Tosca was Fiorenza Cellolins, uh, Salvatore Licci, no, this one was Jose Cura, and Ruggero Remondi. That was my first Tosca cast. So I had an excellent uh, month of Tosca and performances and getting to know the opera and the traditions before I stepped into the arena. And the arena was a crazy experience. Everything you said, Antonio, <laughs> basically you it's it's just a place for gladiators to you yeah. know kill each other um and <laughs> sometimes <laughs> the, the the feeling in in that was like tackling a beast which is the orchestra because the layout of the orchestra is very horizontal rather than depth it's very small and you have a double string section which extends all the way out to the right and all the way out to the left. So you've got the brass one end and you've got the percussion at the other. So okay. it's all about ensemble, keeping it together. Acoustic wise, there's just no work to do because it's beyond your control. Because yeah, if you walk in the piano, it's irrelevant. It just sounds, I mean, you can't <laughs> cover the singers. The 16,000 spectators, um, they will experience different acoustics based on where they're sitting. So you can't have an assistant in the arena saying, è troppo forte, he called From any angle, maybe the, corn, the horns are too loud. So that, that was the challenge. But the beauty of it is everybody knows that who's performing. The orchestra understands, they'll pay extra attention the, to try and watch the stick. Uh, singers, as, as best as they can, will have contact with the conductor. But it's, it's really the emotion that is so special in the arena. So it's terrifying for the first time, I guess, when I'm, you know, you're, everybody has like a Pink Floyd concert. They have their lighters and they hold up and you see this incredible feeling. And so I think if you had a full shot of me right now, what I did always before entering it was like do like a, a bull would do with their feet, you know, <laughs> to enter. It just takes great courage. Whatever happens, gonna happen. Um, oh, yeah. And weather-wise, many performances we had, of course, after a few minutes, might start to rain. There was one performance where I'm, I'm going on. You can cut me off. No, um, I love it. <laughs> there was one performance, a few performances. If the box office is quite 
quite careful about, or cautious. No, the box office is, is very concerned about the weather um, because if you can't get through the first act, then you have to reimburse the audience. So if we can just get through the first act right. without no a yeah, we can call it a day. <laughs> but what happens is if we haven't finished the first act, if we, let's say we get up to the entrance of uh, Doska, if it starts to rain, we have two hours to wait. That's the rule. If it stops raining before two hours, then we go out and perform. But you have to wait those two hours. So the poor singers, who are very stressed and always nervous anyway, um, you know, they have to wait in the rain and it's cold and uh, the gladiator sort of dressing rooms, there's no great dressing room. It's very medieval. So um, it's, it's a challenge in every way, but again, it's just with having that many people Tourists, everybody from all the world, all over the world, is is fantastic. So you do it for for the love of music more than you're not going to make a recording there. <laughs> right, and this was the Zeffirelli set, the really famous, uh, beautiful, um, huge. No. no. You can put me on the spot. Montaldo, Montaldo. Okay. Hmm. Traditional, I'm beautiful. I mean, I would love to hear more about this because it just sounds like such a crazy way to begin your career as uh, a conductor of opera. But you also have more of these types of stories. I mean, you just uh, produced this recording of Zigismondo uh, of Rossini. Oh, got it. You can be a little more flowing there. Zigismondo. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <You're> legato. Yeah. <laughs> Um, can you tell us about the uh, putting that together? I, I hear that there are some interesting anecdotes that relate to that recording. Right. Well, first of all, I have I used to do a lot of bel canto, mm -hmm. and then I I did the Luigi, I did the Cenerentola, I did quite a few. So now when I'm asked, what would you like to conduct? It's always Boris Godunov or Lady Macbeth mm -hmm. or Onegin or The Ring, um, <laughs> which I'm dying to do. Um, so I haven't done a lot of Rossini, but you know, since for a while, but that's basically a preference. I feel like there are a lot of maestros who really do it so well. And it takes a lot of stylistic work. Um, you know, if, I think people who focus on the Rossini, it's great, but I'm, I was willing to do it when I was asked one month, six weeks before the performance that was scheduled was the Bayerische Rundfunk Orchestra. They have a series of concerts, which are live, uh, concert performance of operas, which they sometimes turn into recordings. So I got an email. I was sitting in Macerata uh, one hot summer, three years ago, I think it was, and I received a, an email saying, there's been a cancellation end of September for Rossini's Zigismondo. And, and first of all, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it. I had never heard of it. So I Googled <laughs> it. And it's a rare Rossini opera seria. That was already shows because I like the seria of Rossini, less the buffo, although I adore it, of course. Um, but to conduct. So I, I YouTubed it very quickly. It's a fantastic <laughs> video of it. And I said to my agent, let's do it. So the next day, <laughs> I was on the phone everywhere trying to get a score. I mean, who's heard of Zigi's model? There's no scores. I was researching. I was right near Pesaro, 
uh, Macharata, I think it's not far, uh, the, the Rossini Festival. So I called up the library and I said, hey, I'm in Macharata conducting a weird Zeraviata. Have you got a score of Zidizmono? Sure, we're going to get it for you. We've got the parts. And um, in the meantime, Munich didn't even have the parts. It was so rare. They were trying to get it rented. And so when I called the librarian in Munich, they were saying, yeah, we have no idea what this opera is. Um, but they were trying to hunt it down as well. <laughs> so I've got to make this all concise now because it's such a fascinating process. I, the parts were completely naked, which meaning uh, for Rossini, you really have to have all the dynamics, all the articulations, all the nuances, phrasing in the parts, especially if it's only a week of rehearsals, four days of rehearsals with the symphony orchestra who does not know how to play Rossini. I mean, they know how to play it, but they don't know the Stylistically, piece. yeah, yeah. Stylistically, right. So I fortunately had some time in between performances at and I sat down with the score and all these parts. Uh, I take it back, I sat down with the score and I marked the entire thing and I had a fabulous uh, librarian in Munich who did all the parts. I sent her my score, I made a photocopy of like 400 pages, sent it to her, she did the parts. <laughs> And what that, that is a miracle that happened. She was so determined to, to help me. So we did this in, in nick of time, right before the rehearsals. Okay, that's one step. Then <laughs> I arrived in Munich. The cast had been set. The week prior to arriving, I kept getting emails from the administration at Munich saying, oh, we, our tenor is canceled. We went through three Oh my tenors. God. I, I, yes, it's to be recording because it, they, they thought it was very special to make a recording of such an obscure opera because there weren't any. And that's an excellent strategy, obviously, for, for companies today. So the day I arrived, we had a whole new tenor who he'd sung the part, Kenneth Tarver. Wonderful. He, but he had sung it many, many years ago. So we went through the three tenors. Then Mariana Pizzola, she got sick. Oh, she was delayed. The, for the first three days of rehearsals, she was not there, the lead. So we did that. She came the day before the performance. We had, we threw the rest of the teams together, which is, you know, takes impeccable work, of course. But she has sung the role. We got through the rehearsal process. She was still sick the day of the performance, we were convinced. I mean, she was really groking and, and, and suffering. So it was up to the day of the performance. We got in our dress rehearsal, just so we'd have it back up in the audio. But the performance, I heard her still going <clears throat> at times, but we, we made it through. Somehow it all came together and they decided it was a successful concert and they decided to uh, release the album so it was it was absolutely thrown together and so i was very proud of the results because i think it uh, the orchestra played beautifully and the I'd, lo I'd love to hear more about what you said that you as, as a conductor you like the, the serie right. more than the buffet and yeah. uh, and what it is about specifically the serie because i mean i I, I love them. I love all Rossini, but the, for me, the Serie yes. are very, they're just very different. And I, I would love to yeah. hear about like you, how you view them as different. I think I just feel them closer. Mm. I mean, I love, I love, for, for example, in a season, if I go from a Boris Goodenough to a Barbiere, that contrast is fantastic. 
Sure. Um, but to always have Ufo always be doing that kind of thing. I miss, I miss the, the, the gravity, the gravity we'd call yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is a huge part of, of my character that I think is a little more satisfying for me. I'm less of a Strauss. Um, I don't desire to do Strauss so much, except for the big, like, electrus, this kind of thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but Ariadne, not so much, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or Capriccio. That's definitely not. But just stuff that it feels, it feels, it gets down to the ear bones kind of music. That's obviously the Russian. Well, yeah, and the yeah, Russian, I think that's a, that's a great segue to, to, <laughs> to the Russian stuff because I, I think Russian music, I mean, I, I, Oliver, you, we're about the same age. I think growing up in the United States, there just wasn't a lot of Russian opera except for maybe Onyegin and, and the occasional Peak Dumb. And it you has- know, it, that is unless, still everywhere. That is but you do everywhere. seem like, especially at the Met, you see more and more things. At the I Met, think, yes. Yeah, and, and more and more companies are doing the rigid, the 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 Mazursky orchestration of Boris, which is a different opera than the Rimsky Korsakov, yes. and and you're seeing more and more Russian opera. And I just I don't think I've ever heard a Russian opera that I didn't think was amazing. Like and yeah. and, and I don't know Russian at all, but I would love to hear about like what, you know how did you you said your your grandmother was Ukraine Ukrainian, right? Ukrainian. And so so it's it's sort of a deep personal feeling that you that yes. that brought you to this music. Yes. And um, my grandmother, uh, Oksana Odnik, she, she used to cry at everything. She was always crying. She was happy, she was crying. <laughs> she was sad, she was crying. <laughs> she, and she only spoke Ukrainian, my great-grandmother. Wow. And so I, it was really fascinating as a small child. I, I did not like the pierogies. I did not like <laughs> <laughs> And I still don't like them. But uh, she, we had traditional Ukrainian Orthodox Christmases, and uh, oh, so I was always fascinated by it. And you know what else I was fascinated by? It was the fact that I saw in the Russian culture, I observed it from far, either watching, well, um, the fact that Russians are so dedicated to music, and mm. like how parents, right there with their children and, and, and nourishing them to cultivating them to appreciate music. I and ballet was, too, by the way. Oh, chess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I was always impressed by that. I love that intensity. Uh, but how do I go? So uh, I started working in Russia. Uh, they asked me at the Bolshoi, where was my debut all time? Was it Marinsky? Perhaps it was Marinsky. I was, I, it, early in my career, I became known in my operatic career, I became known as Puccini Verdi, Donizetti, Rossini, an Italian conductor. And I, I thought, well, that's wonderful because I'm very proud of that, but I never wanted to be stereotyped. So I began working um, as a guest conductor with that type of repertoire, Puccini, La Boheme, Tosca's, all that. And I said to the Bolshoi, I said, but now that I've, I've done this repertoire with you, would it be possible to do Russian repertoire? And they said, Konyushna, we're going to give you Yolanta. So I did a Yolanta, Tchaikovsky. Ooh. It was oh. just so beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. But um, from then, from that start, uh, as a guest conductor, you don't have a wealth of rehearsals. 
So I had very little time to put things together. And of course, with Tosca, with Turando, whatever, you need to communicate precisely, concisely. And if you speak English, that's not going to help because they really don't understand so quickly uh, English. So that was a handicap. So I learned very quickly to learn Russian. Um, it was a, a must if I wanted to have a career in Russia. But it wasn't it wasn't a problem because I really had a passion for it. I got a wonderful Wichitonitsa, uh, my tutor. And uh, so I, every time I was home in New York, I would just have two lessons a week. And I, of course, would study on my own on the road. She became my best friend. We constantly talked together on the phone. It's now just part of my daily bread, speaking Russian and reading Russian. So that's when I started really, of course, exploring all the Russian repertoire, because it's my belief that you can't conduct an opera if you don't know the language. If you don't, you should speak it, but if you don't know it, forget it. So that's when I started conducting Yonegin, Nikolaidama, Shostakovich, uh, Boris Kudinov, Yolanta, and I'm still waiting for many more, of course. What are, what are some of the ones on, on your list, like some of the more lesser known ones that you want? Oh, so no. Well, all the Prokofiev, right? right? There's so many yeah. jewels. Those are seldomly done. Fiery Angel, War and Peace, but of course nobody can afford to do a lot of these right. big pieces. Um, and of course, all the like the Borodins, oh, Tsar's uh, wife, I would love to do so many. Mm. <laughs> so does that relate in any way? I mean, I know we, the Russian language and being in Russia influenced that sort of uh, penchant for that type of music. But we also know from what you said earlier today, but also in other interviews, how crazy you are about Wagner. Um, is there a relationship between um, how Russian music works, how those orchestras work, and how you see like the big, big operas like Elektra and the Ring Cycle and whatnot? Well, I think the most important element of these operas is the orchestra. And for a symphonic conductor, you know, all those years in symphony, Bruckner, Mahler, this is what makes my blood boil, of course. It's, it's the, the, the rich, the wealth, of colors and the power from the orchestra. And also the fact that the orchestra is the main voice kind of thing. Uh, I like that because then I'm in control and not dependent always on the singers. They have to be an organic part of the ensemble. So uh, Wagner, I have done Lohengrin, Danweiser, and I believe that's unfortunately it. Flying um, Dutchman, but, I thought. Oh, yes. ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎゅっ。ぎ
inspired. Yeah. Uh, it just gave me a goal because I'm somebody who can't, I constantly have to be doing something, traveling, making music or, or stimulate somehow artistically. So that, uh, that was my gift. I do want to, I do want to talk about Carmen since that's the project that's on your plate right now, but I do want to sort of synthesize some of the stuff that we've already learned about you and how you just began conducting opera um, and it was like a big test right away and you probably had to learn Italian and then being in Russia um, and working there and deciding you need to learn Russian and already knowing that you have played violin and have played uh, piano and have played the flute uh, and then decided to take up conducting. Uh, there's just seems to be this big appetite. Um, and um, I just want to know for somebody like you, what has it been like to uh, have to experience uh, a, sl- a stop, a necessary stop in all the projects that you're doing because of the pandemic. And I also want to know, um, just so you can think about this, um, what it's been like to come back to work and all the precautions that um, yeah. whatever arts organization you're working with have been taking to make sure that you're safe. Yes. Well, I think for all of us who live in North America, it was devastating, this news, because we don't have the closer borders to at least take a car trip to do or take a car over to your next theater in the country where there's potential work in the summer, for example. So I knew I was going to be hunkered down for a long time in New York. Um, I had so many engagements that were canceled uh, and including at Juilliard. I was so looking forward to go back to my alma mater. We were supposed to be doing a bohème um, and also to the BBC proms and to Bolshoi and the Teatro Colón. I had so many places. I was so disappointed. So, but I had to just, you know, this is God's work. This is where we are. And like I said, I said, uh, Either I'm going to feel sorry for myself or I'm going to study the ring. And I studied the ring. But what was difficult was seeing my colleagues in the summer. They were working and they were finding these opportunities. The governments were finding opportunities to make things happen outside, of course, was a huge advantage. So that was really tough. Because I thought, mm, you know, that COVID jealousy, <laughs> they get to do it. And that was really tough, but then I was convinced I would have not come to Paris. So September, yes, we're still, my contract is still being signed. October, yes, we're planning. November, you can start booking your flight mid-November. Yes, we're starting to rehearse, even though the country is shut down. I arrive the third damn year, President Macron. He does his big announcement at 8 p.m. All the French at home with a glass of something to celebrate. <laughs> he says, we are going to open the theaters on December 15th. Do you know when my premiere is? December 16th. It's like Valhalla never burnt down. This is where I am. <laughs> it is the most incredible feeling. We are all here with the expectation of actually having a performance. Because in France, they did keep the rehearsals. 
they, they had to shut down the rehearsals at time if somebody got sick. But they have a system here that everybody is tested twice a week in the theater. They have nurses here. So it's very careful, but we all are this. We can rap like this, we sing like this, <laughs> and it's, it's such- what, what do the woodwind players do? Do they- Well, uh, no, they, they just, <laughs> they put it down and then they play. And then right. they'll put it up. <laughs> um, I have not seen the orchestra yet. I've worked with the chorus. It's interesting. The chorus will sing in masks for the performances. Wow. I know. So are, and, is it a very the, thin mask? Is it is it really uh, effective? These are sound? medical serious masks. Okay. So I applaud the ladies and gentlemen of York, the chorus. They are they're dedicated. And from the first rehearsal, six hours, first day, I was sure they were going to be, you know, not in the best of humor, but they were, we were all just so thrilled to be making music again. It and was exhilarating. You're in the Calixto Bieto staging. Is yeah. he, does he have a, a, an AD that's taking over the staging or is he there to? No. You know, this is a really old production. Okay. It's so good. It's never gone anywhere. I Meaning it's never been closed. It's, yeah. I think, from 80-something, 80, 80 or 90s. But has he, it been adapted for social distancing, or is it the same staging? That's a really good question. The chorus somewhat, mm -hmm. and a little less, we had to shorten it a little. Mm -hmm. So they did a little less, um, some scenes where they took time for moving the cars. There's the famous mm -hmm. Mercedes from the 1960s that are on yeah. the stage. They, they do their little turns and things. We, we did cuts here and there because we all have to be home for the curfew at nine o'clock. Hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's so, COVID, COVID cuts. We yeah. have COVID chorus. The singers are tested uh, twice a week. So they are in contact and they're touching each other. And yeah. Hmm. So is it without intermission? Is the, the opera length, uh, like just one one long act, or are you taking no? We, we have the grace of resting for half an hour. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But we have to start earlier at six six p.m. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that makes it just the right dinner time, right? People have to go home and have dinner, though. That's right. Absolutely. And, and <laughs> you can party longer. No, we we can't even go out. You know, right. it's it's just so different. But again, we are so grateful. Well, we I want to. I feel so fortunate. I want to give Maisha Brazy one chance to ask one last question because we're just about out of time, but I think you wanted to ask about Tristan or something. I, I just wanted to, because, you know, I, I completely understand the only Wagner that I've done is Lohengrin, but I completely understand the, um, you know, the draw of it. And it's very, it's very seductive. And, but the opera of Wagner that I've always loved, even since high school has been Tristan. And I think it's, I, I don't really know why, but it seems like the conductor's opera. Every conductor I know, like Tristan is the thing that they want to do. And I, I think it's maybe just, it's cause it's so rarely done. And and I don't know, I wanted to know like what you, you seem to be very specifically drawn to the ring. And I wanted to know if Tristan was a, a, another one you really wanted uh -huh. to do or if it's just- I love this segue. This is fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, as soon as I put down the ring, um, which was not because I was coming to Paris, it was because I felt like I need closure and I'll, I need to learn something more to be fresh uh, yeah. during the pandemic or to be freshly stimulated. 
and I ordered Tristan. Wow. <laughs> so I, I brought it with me here in France because even mm-hmm. though I'm working on Carmen, of course, in Carmen, I don't need to study it. So throughout days, I'm studying Carmen now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Tristan. Uh, yes. And are you, are you finding it? Uh, I mean, it's just, a, it's just, to me, it's a completely different language than, than anything Absolutely. else he ever even wrote. And it just, Absolutely. It, and, and, and it's so hard to understand, but it, it is really rewarding. And I wanted to know, yes. like, you know, it, it's just the, t- it's just the prototypical orchestral opera. Yes. I mean, everything about it is, is orchestral, yet it's yeah. not as big. It, it's, you know, by Wagner standards, it's almost a chamber opera like it's wins and threes i think it's, yeah. very, it's very small compared to the to um to to the ring and is it on your i mean is it like right up there with the ring is it is is parsifal higher like which or is it all kind of <laughs> you want to do everything uh they are all right up there okay all together yes all right. yes <laughs> thank you great question um i've done the prelude and Liebestode, and that yes that, i mean i will do that I, as long as I can, for any symphonic concert, I will always say, sure. yes, you took the words out of my mouth. It's yeah. the greatest, one of the greatest pieces of Wagner. <laughs> yes. That's what I call uh, giving you the answer and the question, Anthony. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I can't believe that you said Here I am, exactly. That is funny. Yeah. Do you? Do you? I, just th- this is sort of like a, a shop talk. But do you actually bring the physical score? Or do you have it like an iPad? I mean, because now you know, I have to have physical score. You have to have very old-fashioned. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's Great. why I work out, so I can carry this. <laughs> <laughs> a good point. Well, yeah. Maestro Wilson, I've, I've heard you talk about um, how, you know, you are energized by performance, by the artists on the stage, and definitely by the energy you get from the audience. So I wish for you that this Carmen performance uh, recharges you, even though you seem plenty full of energy right now. I hope you get a lot of uh, joy and satisfaction out of that performance in just two weeks. Wow. Yes. I think it's a week from Saturday. Yeah. We're all envious of you. And we- I wish you could be here. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> how many performances? Be a time and we can- how many performance total? Six. Six. Oh, that's Six. fantastic. One on Christmas and one on New Year's as well. New oh, Year's that's Eve. delightful. Oh, quite special. Yeah. Yeah, well, I hope it's broadcast. At least it would be transmitted. I'm not sure. Oh, maybe they'll yeah. make a recording on the fly. <laughs> I, would, I would hope so. It's such a special occasion, but I'll send it to you if we do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so thank much, you, both of you. It was a pleasure, and I hope to meet you both in Dallas. Yes, let's do it. And yes. good luck with Don Carlo. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The stage lights may be out at the Metropolitan Opera, but the labor drama continues. The company will lock out its stage hands at midnight on Tuesday after the union objected to a proposal which offered a 30% pay cut for the roughly 300 furloughed workers in exchange for weekly payments of $1,500. It's the most wonderful time of year. It's award season. 
Opera News honorees, otherwise known as My Dream Dinner Party Table, include mezzo-soprano Janet Baker, mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli, and friend of the show slash fantasy football rival Tanner Lawrence Brownlee. A virtual gala honoring the winners will be held in April 2021. In Germany, the Oper Awards went to such luminaries as friend of the show Benjamin Bernheim, who won Best Male Singer, Anita Rashvelishvili as Best Female Singer, and the Lifetime Achievement Award went to Hans Neuenfels. The most important award, however, was for the biggest nuisance of 2020, which was given out to, and I quote, the lack of imagination and passive self-victimization of opera houses during the pandemic. Burn. Finnish soprano Karita Matila has been awarded the Order of the Lion of Finland First Class Commander Badge. We're not sure if that's a military honor or a cultural honor, but it sounds really cool. Grammy nominations are in, sparring off in the best opera recording are Agrippina, featuring friend of the show Jakob Josef Orlinski, and the Porgy and Bess, recording from the Met, featuring friend of the show Frederick Ballantyne. Rain or shine, COVID-19 vaccine or not, the Grammy Awards ceremony will be held on Sunday, January 31st, 2021. That's right before the Super Bowl. Baritone Christian Gehar is spearheading a group of prominent singers and artists that will take legal actions against the closures of theaters, concert halls, and opera houses in Bavaria. The announcement came as Germany extended its lockdown on theaters until January 2021. Meanwhile, in France, President Macron's lockdown lift on theaters, cinemas, and museums will allow for the reopening of the Opera de Lyon, Opera du Rhin, and Paris Opera beginning December 15th. Nota bene. Restaurants and bars remain closed until at least January 20th, so if you are going to see Maestro Wilson conduct Carmen at the Bastille, pregame at home. The Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced that its seating overhaul is nearly complete. The renovation includes more comfortable seats in its historic auditorium, but reduces the capacity of the house from 3,563 to 3,276. I assume that will mean more legroom for me, but folks, I'm six foot seven, so it's never enough. It's never enough. Yeah, there, Weston, you gentle giant. In free agency news, just two weeks after announcing his departure from Houston Grand Opera, Perrin Leach has been announced as the new general director of the Canadian Opera Company. His HGO tenure concludes at the end of this year. He'll join COC in March. The prolific Canadian opera director and librettist Michael Cavanaugh has been appointed artistic director at the Royal Swedish Opera. Cavanaugh has directed over 150 opera productions at companies across Canada, the US, and Europe. Notably, he produced a Nixon in China for the Vancouver Opera, which was developed to coincide with the 2010 Winter Olympics. Kavanaugh starts his five-year appointment in Stockholm starting next summer. Italian soprano Cecilia Fusco has died at the age of 87 from COVID-19. Fusco had an international career in the 1970s, and following her retirement was an in-demand teacher at Italian conservatories. And on this day, December 7th, the Theatre Royal opened in Covent Garden, which later became the Royal Opera House in 1783. In 1863, it was the birth of the composer of the Cav half of the Cav Pag double bill, Pietro Mascagni, in Livorno. Uh, another half opera premiere in 1879, the first performance of La Puise de Troyes, the first half of Hector Berlioz's Les Troyens in Paris. Here's one for George. In 1889, Gilbert Sullivan, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Gondoliers premiered at the Savoy Theatre in London. Tchaikovsky's Pique Dame premiered in 1890 in St. Petersburg. 
1898, the third Opera Comique building, the Salle Favard, opened in Paris. The previous two had both burned down. In 1903, the first Irish opera with Gaelic words, Muirgesh, composed by O'Brien Butler Whitehall, premiered in Dublin. Side note, Whitehall died in the sinking of the Lusitania. One for Oliver, in 1927, it was the birth of Welsh contralto Helen Watts. December 7th is also the birthday of American bass baritone Richard Cross, born in 1935 in Faribault, Minnesota. Another Midwestern artist, baritone Frederick Birkenall, was born in Wichita in 1948. And 1950, it was the birth of American mezzo-soprano Kathleen Kuhlmann. And in 1981, it was the birthday of the stage and TV actor, bass baritone, and fellow gentle giant for Weston, friend of the show, Zachary James. Hey, next year's gonna be a big one for you, Zachary. That's your two-minute drill. So that is Helen Watts, or that was Helen Watts from a 1976 performance of the Messiah uh, with the Academy of St. Martin just the Fields Messiah. of Messiah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to confess to you guys that my first recording of Messiah was the Colin Davis recording uh, with Heather Harper and Helen Watts. Um, and that was that right now, that performance you just heard or that singer we just heard uh just sparked something in me that has made me my whole life fascinated with chess voice. And I felt like as a kid, I was probably like 15 years old, maybe 14 when I first heard that, that I was hearing something that I wasn't supposed to hear. That the, <laughs> the androgyny and the sudden shift into what I identified as a male tone quality coming out of a woman's voice and going back and forth between that, it felt completely erotic to me. I was like, this is are you hearing this? Like, I'm not, I felt like it was dirty, you know? And I've been, I've been addicted to the female chess voice ever since. Um, I'm sure there's some parallel to other types of media that somebody that age consumes. <laughs> but um, anyway, I'll leave it there. Uh, but I'm crazy I, about that performance by Helen Watts. And uh, I yeah, am, fantastic I'm singer. never interested in hearing a baritone's version of that aria. It's so much more interesting <laughs> no. to hear no. how a mezzo or contralto has yeah. to deal with the, the registration shifts and everything. Yeah. But she navigates it so easily. It's just yeah. like you can't tell where the chest ends and where the well, you can actually, but you know. When I was <laughs> that age, I couldn't tell. I was like, what who is this this gender? I mean, like, yes, we're in an age now where gender is a conversation, but back then I was like, I thought this was so cool. So <laughs> we'll leave it there. Well, you're not you may not be interested in baritones, Matt, but you are interested in the union drama playing out at yeah, Lincoln Center. Our 2020 union watch continues at Lincoln Center. <laughs> 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 Coming in over the trans, Em. Pulitzer is saying that they're not going to accept the papes. That's actually gay news, by the way. No, I changed the percussive order on purpose. We can't get flagged. First of all, the unions are 
probably not far off by by objecting to the fact that tying these rule changes to the box office is going to is potentially very bad for them. Mm. We don't know what is going to happen after the pandemic, even after performances come back, and that gives the Met and or other houses that try to make arrangements like this an ability to extend them way way into the future uh and just to and to make these unions give up hard-fought gains that they've really gotten to protect their workers and to make these good jobs over years and years. Uh and management l- at basically any company, their strategy is to leak these big inflated numbers that make the unions look like these in, these bad guys and these fat cats. But I they they very specifically never show the math about how they got to that number, and we don't have to fall for it. That that's all I want to say there. Oliver, <laughs> let's let's throw it over to you. So many opera awards to dive into here: Grammys, Opers. Yeah, well, the Grammys are just, we're just talking about the nominations and like they actually, they actually came out last week and I felt like we should just take a moment to uh, maybe handicap or at least acknowledge who's been nominated. So for best opera recording, lots of new operas, uh, Norman de la Joyo's The Trial at Rouen, uh, which is a production by uh, Boston Modern Opera Project. There's also... Carlo Floyd's uh, brand new Prince of Players, starring Keith Ferris and Kate Royal. That's from Milwaukee, Florentine Opera. Uh, then there's the old, the very old, the Agrippina with Joyce DiDonato in the production that features the great orchestra, Il Pomodoro, which is conducted by Maxim Emelianichev, who is incredible. He plays, I think, cornetto and recorder, and he conducts and plays harpsichord all at the same time. I'm not even kidding you. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He does. Wow. Um, that has Joyce Donato and as one of the, um, I think it's Narciso is the role. Um, that's mm-hmm. Jakob Josef Orlinski, friend of the show. And then there's the Porgy and Best, which was not intended to be a recording, but I think that's how the Mets getting their entry into this category. Uh, it's the DVD production, but I guess they're making a right. CD out of that. And that has Angel Blue and Eric Owens and also friend of the show, Frederick Ballantyne as Sport and Life from the Met. And finally, one for Weston uh, Detzberg. <laughs> Me specifically. <laughs> <laughs> they know their uh, audience. Um, that's from Deutsch Opera. That's Zelensky's opera, Detzberg. I believe that's another uh, another DVD, not a uh, recording. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think that's, I think that's correct. Uh, of note, in the choral performance category, uh, there's a piece called The Passion of Yeshua, uh, which is from the Buffalo Philharmonic, conducted by Joanne Folletta, and features, among others, uh, Janae Bridges and Kenneth Overton. And Quick shout out to Kenneth Overton, who'll be our interview guest next week. Uh, in the classical solo vocal album, super interesting category this time around. Um, Cecilia Bartoli, the old standby, in a con- <laughs> com- com- recording with uh, Giardino Armonico, and that's uh, Farinelli Arias. Real Nick- passion project for yeah. her. <laughs> She'll do like whatever she wants, and you're going to like it. True, true. Uh, Nick Pon uh, in. Aww. Songs of Lily and Nadia Boulanger called Clarier with Myra Huang, a pianist. Uh, But she's listed as the accompanist. Um, I feel like we're going to take a little break right now and talk about that. Well, uh, we we are in that she she was uh, nominated with Nicholas for this beautiful recording of Boulanger songs, uh, but she's listed as uh, Myra Wang accompanist, and she decided to write uh, a well-deserved letter to the Recording Academy uh, to basically tell them, uh, I'm writing today because I do hold one complaint. First, she thanks them and says it's such a great honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's super excited about it. Um, 
I object to the word accompanist because the word accompanist infers that my role was lesser than when in fact I consider uh, the genre of my album with Nick as chamber music where all instruments involved are equal. Uh, art song is chamber music for voice and piano, not voice and accompanist. Not only that, I feel some dignity is taken from me when I am not listed with my instrument, which is the piano. Uh, so she's got a point. I think she's got a point. I mean, at the very least, ask. There are, I mean, not right. every pianist agrees about what the terminology is, and people should be able to choose what, you know, what title their profession they're referred to best. And I believe this is also like the default. Uh, like, I think all of the pianists uh, in this category are referred to as accompanists. Right. Yeah. And so the point of her letter is, I, I hope that in the future you will consider changing this. I hope right. that you will consider changing accompanists to pianists or even just piano in the future to sort of more accurately acknowledge the work that's being done. So I've been guilty of this. I mean, I've been in, I've been doing arts marketing, you know, either professionally or just recreationally for decades. And I've been called out so many times about from pianists who say, you know, you don't even list, you have like a recital or a performance with the singer. And there's clearly a piano there. Was it acapella? <laughs> you know, uh, and yeah. you, you do see this even from opera companies who mm -hmm. are, you know, who are marketing their virtual performances of Larry Brownlee or whoever. I'm not saying it was Larry Brownlee, but certain, you know, marquee level singer giving a concert and they don't mention who the pianist is. Jonas Kaufman live. Was yeah. he singing a cappella? By himself. <laughs> yeah, so. it, it's it's yeah. the same sort of vibe as the phrase musicians and singers. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not great. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> um, so back to the Grammy nominations. There's also a brand new recording by a tenor named Brian Giebler, uh, which I have right here. I haven't listened to it yet, but it's on my list of things to listen to. He's really adorable wearing suspenders uh, with pianist <laughs> Stephen McGee. Uh, in art songs of uh, Ivor Gurney, Peter Warlock, Roger Quilter, John Ireland. Sounds very white mm. to me. Um, it is called a lad's love, after all. <laughs> I true. didn't expect anything other than proper British tunes. <laughs> There's an Ethel Smythe recording, um, yeah. which features Deshaun Burton and Sarah Braley. Um, that's called The Prison. That's such a cool recording, too. Yeah. And uh, American composers that play... William Bolcom, Ricky and Gordon, Lori Lightman, and John Mosto with baritone Stephen Powell and other musicians, including pianists and guitarists and lots of yeah, That's a great lineup. I'm so glad to see Bill Bolcom is still being recorded. He's such a marvelous composer. What do you mean and still being recorded? Like, is there a time to stop recording people? I mean, we're still recording <laughs> Schubert, you know? No, no, quite the contrary. I mean, it feels I can't point to like a recent recording that kind of featured his work. So I'm glad that it's yeah, that it is being represented. He's being represented. Well, that um, opera that you did was not too long ago recorded. Um, what opera was it? Called? Lucrezia. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, that was recorded with with um, Timothy, the Timothy Paul Appleby and others were on that recording. I forget where, where, but um, finally, um, Prince of Players made it onto a second category: the Carlisle Floyd show. Double dipping. Yeah, they're double dipping. <laughs> they were also nominated for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. It's kind of extraordinary to me that, that Carlisle Floyd is still churning out operas. He's still like alive. He's like he's still going. I'm always surprised. I'm like, you you go, Carlisle. I mean... He uh, is 275 <laughs> years old, and he is still going. Well, I let the records him. show that like um, um, Richard Danielpour's opera is also listed here, too. It's not just uh, Carlisle Floyd that's double dipping. Is it an that's opera, true. the Daniel Porsche? 
I didn't remember. I, I messed that one up. I guess it, it's the passion it's a, of. I think it's a. Yeah, it's it's more, more of a more of an oratorio. It, it, oratorio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oratorio is yeah. probably more more like it. But it is also double dipping. You're right. No. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ted so, Ted Hearn as well. That's awesome. Chicago yeah. local. Yeah. Um, Weston, could you lead us off on the conversation about the Oppers? Sure. Um, well, there's the uh, this is the <laughs> the German Grammys, uh, as they're referred to <laughs> by Weston, <laughs> by me and me only. <laughs> uh, I think we have. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, we got a friend of the show, Benjamin Bernheim. Uh, which is uh, uh, which is great. Anita Rashvelishvili, um, the one for two in terms of the singers of the year. Anita, exactly. You know where we are, <laughs> and <laughs> we're we're just getting all of them. Next up is going to be Hans Neuenfels, I bet. Uh, for that, what was that? The, the rat Lohengrin on Bayreuth from like 10 years ago? Iconic. Hans Neuenfels uh, is an utterly brilliant director. His autobiography, which came out in 2011, is called Das Bastard Buch. Uh, which I'm praying that my German is good enough that I can start to work my way through that. I'm so thrilled. Uh, he's, of course, at the Wiederstaatsoper now, but I'm so and, thrilled and, that he got this Lifetime of, Achievement Award. And speaking of uh, directorial sort of things, uh, one of the ones we didn't mention in the actual reading of the two-minute drill was the Opera Nationale de Paris, uh, Les Indigolons. Uh, if I may butcher the French. You did uh, butcher yes. it. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to try. I'm gonna try. <laughs> Les Indes Galantes. Was that yeah. closer? Na- nailed it. Yeah, that was, I was great. I was closer. Do you know what? Oliver mentioned this on a show some weeks back. I must yeah, have weeks been... back, like this almost a year ago. <laughs> this was this this, this clip. One of the clips like literally went viral, like all over the place. If you haven't seen it, you can I check it out. I lit, folks. Look, I literally saw. I'm going to bust out the sharpie. I literally saw this <laughs> clip this morning. Go watch right now. I'm going to link it to our website, operaboxcore.com. It is so phenomenal. It's going to change your world upside It's just down. like the, the hip-hop dancing to the, to the French crunk. Baroque. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, there's also got the best world premiere, which went to uh, Macbeth Underworld at the Teatro de la Monet. Uh, best we, we were we were gonna take a dance break. We forgot. Oh yeah, what about a dance break? What is a little pop and lock for you? <laughs> well, we I were talking about Lisanne Galant and the break dancing, but it's actually crunk. But um, Ashley, you had something to say about? I mean, speaking of uh, of relatively young and hip dance styles, uh, <laughs> the International <laughs> Olympic Committee. We're gonna have a sports dance break right quick. The IOC just today uh, made break dancing an official Olympic sport for Amazing. the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris, oddly enough. Um, the thing that's so bizarre about this for me is that in the ESPN article where they announced this just a couple of hours ago, uh, they said that they uh, were quote, pursuing urban events to lure a younger audience. Uh, and the thing is... Oh, my. When it, <laughs> yeah, first of all, questionable phrasing. Second of all, uh, when it comes to breakdancing, all of the B-boys I know are between 34 and 47 years old. So I'm not totally sure how this draws a younger audience, but we'll it'll, it'll It'll get Oliver in the room, so that's great. Uh, <laughs> I should also mention the Vienna Phil One Best Orchestra, uh, Piotr Bacala won the best solo album uh, album for Vincero, and the best opera recording went to Benvenuto Cellini, uh, by, uh, conducted by John Elliott Gardner, uh, whom I stand. Uh, 
Uh, the best <laughs> costume design went to uh, uh, Josa Max for his work on The Smith of Ghent. Stage designer Ersan Montag, Tobias Kratzer got best director, uh, who I'm sure George knows intimately, but I do not. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to butcher his name, but Bruno de Sa was a, a, a Brazilian uh, countertenor who won the best newcomer award, whom I'd also never heard of. You know, but, uh, his stars rising. I I don't think that we're gonna have any awards for uh, Christian Gerhard though. Although that depends <laughs> on how the judge rules. What's your What's your take, Matt? Talk us through it. I mean, to me, it's like it depends on what they're suing for. Like, are they suing to open the theaters back up? No, mm. no. Get in the timeout corner with Ricardo Muti if you're trying to do that. <laughs> um, Ashley Christian Gerhard. <laughs> um, what's, what I, do you, I what just. Do you think? I have a, I've, I've written a little note and I folded into a piece of, a, a little shape and I put it in an envelope and I'm mailing it to Germany to Mr. Gerhar. And it just says, dear Christian, get off the cross. We need the wood. <laughs> it's true. There is a lumber shortage. Uh, but it, I, I mean, it, it is also possible that they're suing for like financial relief or something Maybe. like that. Right. Something a lot more reasonable, something a lot more in line with public health. We'll see. The jury, quite literally, is still out. That is my hope. That is my hope. I just, I think, I think it's very telling. uh, Number one, that I'm a pessimist, but I think just in general, I think it's very telling that in seeing this news item pop up, my first reaction was rage because I'm so used to seeing people at the highest echelons of this art form stamping their feet and crossing their arms to say, open the theaters, we need Mm -hmm. art. Uh, And because we've seen that in such rapid succession in the last few months when so many other things are so bad and so many people are hurting, uh, it's, you're right, we don't totally know what they're suing for, but I think we have a good idea. And I think that's what makes this, uh, this one particular news item so frustrating for me. We're going to wrap up the drill with two quick stories. A couple weeks ago on the show, uh, when Perrin Leach announced his retirement from HGO, I said, Watch this. Hang on. Let's get the Sharpie. Watch this guy. <laughs> he is he is going places. He had done many years at HGO. He had guided them through the hurricane crisis of a couple years ago. Here he is at COC. Did I think it was going to happen that quickly? No, I didn't but, think it was going to happen that quickly. There he is. But it turns out that he's the only person on earth who can help Alexander Neef run all these companies. <laughs> what don't you do, Alexander? Well, you don't sit at the Lyric. Weston, um, I feel for you, sir. I feel uh, for you. Yeah, I, I'm having nightmares about this renovation I have ever since they announced it. Because uh, there's a certain other theater in Chicago, which rhymes with um, Flutaflaker. Uh, theater where they did a thing where they replaced all of their seats and I was like great new seats renovations I literally cannot sit in the balcony seats like I have to have my my legs wrapped around the person in front of me like a lower half hug and that's not really the vibe you want when you're experiencing you know anything for more than three minutes I mean I'm significantly <laughs> less likely than you are and I can't even fit into the balcony seats at the Studebaker so I mean, it's nice you oops. can rest your chin on your knees you know? what I'm <laughs> what I'm hoping for is sort of the first class airline seats thing where you can like recline and there's like a TV on the back of the chair I'm pretty sure that's not gonna happen though all right let's wrap this show up good call bad call on opera box score. Good call, bad call. What a packed show it was this week. Uh, Oliver, what do you got for us? 
Friend of the show and birthday boy, Zachary James, uh, just released today uh, a video of him singing, speaking, <laughs> um, Edgar Allan's performance, po- the, the Raven, uh, with a collaboration with composer Kristen Hefner. It just came out today. It's super cool. Uh, he's dressed up old timey and <laughs> it's great. You could say that about a lot of opera related productions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's cinematic. It's very theatrical. Um, it's multi uh, multimedia, I would say. And that's, I think that's the direction. If we're going to stay in the pandemic, this is the direction that opera needs to go. Not, um, okay. I'll just say that. That's the direction we can go. If we stay in this situation, hopefully we won't have to, but this is the type of art I'm willing to sit down and watch on my computer. Matt Cummings. While we're all here listening to our holiday music playlist, I have a new one for you that was uh, circulating on my social media last week, which is the mashup that we all need. All I want for Christmas is Erkenich. Uh That takes the first verse of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You and uh, puts the accompaniment of the list transcription of Earl Koenig underneath it. It's extremely good. It is incredible. <laughs> it's amazing. That is so good. That will also count for Weston's. <laughs> Ashley. I need you to go to your Goog, and I need you to type in three words. Dion Warwick Twitter. <laughs> the Grand Dame has come to Twitter, and she is speaking to the youths, and it is amazing. Uh, the exchange that she has with Chance the Rapper is incredible. Uh, and he goes, oh my god, I can't believe you know me. And she's like, of course I do. You're the rapper, because it's in your name. Uh, so yes, if you need a holiday treat, get yourself to any article about Dion Warwick currently on Twitter, because it's amazing. Good call from me. Uh, middle-class artist, Sax Finkelstein, uh, huge article in the Boston Globe, not about him, but really from his research as of our taping on the show. He's got 50,000 views on that. This guy is just so dialed in. Well, his credit, his so, collaborators are credited on that too. So we should mention they, that. So, they should, it's, yeah. No, it's not, it's not just him. It is a yeah. team effort. Thank We're you just bragging about Zach because we had him on the show. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, We're kingmakers. But, it's it's well we're kingmakers exactly yeah. that's it for this week's edition of america's <laughs> talk radio show about opera our announcer is norm waddell at normwaddell.com on facebook search for opera box score be sure to share comment on our posts twitter instagram we're at opera box score podcast version of our show available on soundcloud apple podcasts the views and opinions expressed on opera box score are solely those of the show's creative team any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Carrie Lynn Wilson, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera in fewer but more spacious seats for most. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with Ken Overton, and we make our listicles, and we check them twice-icles. Uh, plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more chocolate coins from the Advent calendar. Join us. 